Hello and welcome back to another video on this channel. Today we are live and we're joined by Warren Zhu, my dear friend, to talk nothing about <laughs> than other than Don Quixote, a book which is very close to my heart. We're going to be discussing a bit about it, the history of the Quixote, the philosophy of the Quixote, its links with Dostoevsky, uh, more specifically the idiot, and also the applications of Don Quixote in our lives, and also perhaps later on why we should read Don Quixote, because it's a massive long book, which is Quite interesting, but we'll see how that goes. So before we get into this video, like always, I have to ask you this question. Warren, how are you? Your hair looks absolutely crazy today. <laughs> I'm feeling quite good. I've been in quarantine, so so I, I haven't been bothered to fix my hair at all. So it's, it's been like 14 days of just my hair here sort of sprawling into each other. And now I, I can't even get it. I can't even get it nice, even if I try. So I decided to make it really messy, just like we Jota. I think that that is a very interesting place to start off with because, of course, we always like talking about um, Don Quixote, its implications, and perhaps one of the biggest questions when it comes to Don Quixote is exactly how you're meant to interpret it because, of course, Don Quixote has been interpreted in so many different forms over the, over the years, and it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what is the correct way to look at it. You, Some people look at it purely as comedy. Some people look at it as purely as a bit of a philosophical work and and of course there's the first part of the Quixote and the second part of the Quijote and and perhaps they can be juxtaposed a bit you go more from the the pure perhaps comedy which I don't necessarily like that interpretation to the pure or deeper philosophical discussions there's a very big broad discussion about the history of the Quixote and is there any places where you want to start off with or anywhere you want well to actually I'm interested stuff? in the distinction between the first part of the Quixote and the second part of the Quixote because although we're talking about Don Quixote I actually haven't read the book. I've, I've listened to the first 15% of the book on Audible, and that's all I've done <laughs> to prepare for the episode. So can you explain? I think it's good because the listener, I, I'm guessing a listener, might not have read Kujote either. So can you explain the first and the second part? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the first and the second part of Don Quixote are, are perhaps um, separated in this sense where the first part, I mean, both of them are similar in the sense that they follow the same storyline. But also, at the same time, what we notice is that the, in the first part, we see him just entering the world, entering this world of, of play knighthood, perhaps, if that's how you want to look at it, pretending to be a knight. And in the second part, he goes beyond that. And, and of course, it's not necessarily going beyond that in the sense that he suddenly stopped being um, there, stopped being a knight or anything like that. But it's more so the case that is from a different perspective that they approach. It is more of a perspective of, the, the Duchess and the Duke when they're looking at, and that's perhaps a different uh, discussion of the Quijote. And in fact, if you're looking at uh, Don Quijote and the history of Don Quijote, when they're writing the second part, there's actually someone else who wrote another one saying that this is the correct Don Quijote, who wasn't actually Cervantes. And there's a lot of fraudulent copies going around. So you could suggest that um, when, when um, Cervantes was writing uh, the Don Quijote, or at least the second part of Don Quijote, there's this um, discussion about the, perhaps the fact that there's actually another book going on, which is giving a fraudulent account of Don Quixote. So what a Cervantes is doing in this uh, discussion is trying to approach the situation as if it is an actual history. And when he writes it, he's like, well, I saw a different person writing like this. I saw this account here. And that happens also in the first part when after a certain part, I think it's when he meets the knight and the princess and then they lose the battle to the princess or the princess's soldiers, or wins the battle. Essentially, it stops halfway through the account, and there's like, well, I don't know about what goes on afterwards. And then they suddenly return and say, well, oh, but then I read another source. 
So there's a lot of different perspectives in uh, Don Quixote. And of course, that definitely changes across the time. So it, it seems like the tale of Don Quixote is quite, uh, I guess, self-consciously fictional in the sense that, mm -hmm. at least from where I read at the start, there's sort of this author's preface about how he wrote the story and everything like that. How, how do you think, should a new reader approach the, the book, how much is it tethered to its history and how much can, can it be seen as a separate tome and how much should we care that it has a self-conscious fictionality involved in it? Mm -hmm. I think that this is a very interesting question. It's very difficult to understand exactly what perspective do you approach Don Quixote because I think that this usage of like kind of this metafictional kind of idea is definitely something which is very, very interesting because in most novels, you, you approach them and they're like, you know that while they're fiction, they don't accept itself as fiction. But perhaps what Don, that what the writer does here is that while he doesn't necessarily fully accept that it's fictional, he also, he presents it as if it is history. And that's something you also find in Lord of the Rings, where he's trying to create perhaps a, a history of, or a mythology of, of England, which is perhaps lacking. And in some sense, it is this kind of, this tone of the, non-omniscient author which is something which is wrestled with which casts further doubt both on the story itself and also on the author which mm -hmm. i think is a device which is quite interesting to be used by the reader and i don't think there's a set way of understanding it perhaps purely or fully yeah actually what i also find very interesting is uh, it is these works which are almost mythologies that are created which become real and realized inside inside reality in a sense that you have Lord of the Rings, and although it's a fictional account, it, it has such a large impact in, in the world, and in the same way that Don Quixote and also uh, Virgil's Aeneid has such a such a large impact, even though it's intentionally fictional, that somehow the narrative can coincide with reality, even when, when, when you know that it is somehow, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is somehow even though we know that Don Quixote is fiction, when we're reading it, it still feels incredibly real to us for some reason. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that that's true. And I think when we're discussing or actually reading um, just just novels in general, is is precisely the balance for that impact on our lives. And I think that it is precisely this generational impact, if that's how, you, how one could call it, which precisely demonstrates the strength or the weaknesses of a certain work. For example, the strengths of Tolkien, not only is the individual work, the beauty, but also its influence on society. And I think that perhaps there is very little books, apart from Kijota, which really started a change in the in the history or the discussion of the of the of the book. And that's very important or something that we can definitely take mm -hmm. into consideration. Yeah. And perhaps an another really interesting thing is that sometimes it seems like we have to we have to do violence to the facts in order to create a good story. And once you create that good story, almost the story feels more real than what actually happens. Because as you know, recently I've been watching a lot of movies to kill time in, in the very anxious times of college application. And what I realized, because I've been watching a ton of biopics of all kinds of people, is that it, it almost never coincides with reality. But whenever you're, when you're watching the picture, what, what the movie is presenting feels much real than what actually happens in real life. So somehow our idea of realness can be exploited and calibrated. It doesn't correspond with 
what, what actually happens, statements of fact. And I think this links very well with Quijote, because Quijote also mixes fiction and fact and, and turns fiction into fact, makes fiction reality for him. And I guess the question is, is this something that's special to Quijote, that he's in his delusional world of knights, or is there a, a larger allegory that the that the book is about, where we are all Quijote inside our own inside our own worlds? I think that what you're asking is a very interesting question, and perhaps what we are looking at when we are indeed discussing this situation is is precisely the the question of of whether of how exactly are we meant to interpret Quijote? Because, of course, as I've said before, it has been interpreted in multiple different forms. In Dostoevsky's, perhaps, interpretation of it, in one of his letters, he writes that there is no more Christian work than the Quijote, which is a very interesting thing, because it's, it's kind of curious about how strong, or at least how much Cervantes was a Christian. Of course, he probably had the theistic inclination, but the role of Christianity isn't very clear, at least in in Kijot, if you read it from a completely literal sense, because you have the curate, the priest, who, who arguably has a somewhat dodgy nature to him, and it's kind of a double-edged thing. It's not the reverence you see for Zosim in 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 perhaps the brothers Karamazov. So, so the the idea of it being a purely or the a, a beautiful Christian a work perhaps is is interesting um, in, interpretation of Kijot, and perhaps it represents the fact that we all are, as you said a tragic kind of figure in some sense that we all have ideals which may be right or may be incorrect and that we act in a very absurd way towards those ideals and the application of those ideals in our lives and perhaps there's also that question between the pragmatism and the application in life because of course um in in the introduction i think the prologue i think um don uh, cervantes writes and I, I i wonder if i could find you the actual quote in spanish but but something along the lines of you could you could look at all these uh, smart people since the beginning of time and then they always talk a lot about well oh there is you know so much about this certain thing you know so much about these philosophers they write a lot about these philosophers to make everyone think they're so smart when they're actually really stupid for example i was watching this debate recently and someone was just quoting all these philosophers and you're like you don't you haven't made any arguments apart from saying this philosopher said this and this philosopher said that and I think I found the quote in Spanish. Otros libros son tan llenos de sentencias de Aristóteles, de Platón y de toda la caterva de filósofos que admiran a los leyentes tienen a sus autores por hombres leídos eruditos y elocuentes. It's basically this, like other books are so full of sentences of Aristotle, Plato, and all the trans philosophers that make the readers admire the writer's profound, knowledgeable, eloquent reading without them actually thinking about what the case actually is. So I definitely think that there is that tie in there and that we have to wrestle with this idea of its applications and it's kind of the dialectic there as well. Yeah, that's what I realized. Like when, when I first get into philosophy, got into philosophy and read a lot of books, I really enjoyed quoting a ton of philosophers. But the more, <laughs> the more I went on and the more I read, <laughs> the less I liked quoting philosophers, the more I just like to say out things without referencing to what, what what's before. Although you can argue that I I, I still like to show off. I think Warren <laughs> Jew, I, I I have to say it that you still like to show off a lot. <laughs> you're you're precisely the you're precisely the deceitful uh, writers that um Cervantes was beating over beating here in his in his essay. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, uh, coming back to slightly more serious grounds. Uh, since Dostoevsky said that there's no more Christian book than Don Quixote, are you saying that's all? It, does he mean? I, I guess one possible interpretation is that all Christians are as deluded as Quixote, sort of inside the small bubble of fiction as Christianity, as all of these lords in the New and Old Testament, which has no no bearing on reality, which does not correspond to anything in reality. And I guess this is one interpretation that one can have when listening to Dostoevsky's quote. How, how would you respond to that? I think what we notice here is, is that you could perhaps say, take a Petersonian approach and say that maybe the fiction is as real as the nonfiction, who, who is meant to challenge that. Though, though I don't necessarily think that that approach is very convincing, I would like to say, and I don't find it very convincing personally. But rather, I think that perhaps the better way to look at it is, is precisely the purity of Don Quixote. And, and perhaps a good way to understand it is by juxtaposing it with um, the idiot, Mushkin, in, um, in The Idiot. And, and it's that juxtaposition, which is interesting because... Because when we read uh, Dostoevsky's letters, we see that uh, Dostoevsky, when he's writing The Idiot, was deeply influenced to some degree by Don Quixote. And, and it was precisely this um, relationship between the two characters, which perhaps gives us our understanding by what it means for Dostoevsky to say Don Quixote was, a, was the most Christian book. It's precisely the idea that Don Quixote follows his ideals, and it is that pursuit of the ideals which is nice and good. But then that also betrays, I think, the very difference fundamentally between Dostoevsky and Quixote, which I personally think that Dostoevsky somewhat misinterprets uh, Quixote in the sense that when we look at Mushkin, Mushkin is good not because he's following his ideals, but because he is by nature good. Because in, in The Idiot, we don't read Mushkin referring to multiple values, rather <coughs> he embodies and embraces the ideals. But when in the Quixote, we see um, we see, we constantly see somewhat Quixote referring to these ancient tales and applying those tales into his life to put himself into the story and saying, well, I am in the fiction. And perhaps in some degree, instead of quoting these philosophers, Cervantes makes Don Quixote quote the tales of knight errantry and has fallen into his own somewhat of a trap. So there is that slight difference between Quixote and, and perhaps um, the idiot Mushkin, which perhaps separates or illustrates this perhaps slight misinterpretation by Dostoevsky or potential misinterpretation. Okay. Well, I, I, a new idea just came to mind. I wonder what you think about it. So Hannah Arndt had this very, very influential idea called the banality of evil. That is when evil is done, you don't normally have a very malevolent person, but normally it's just someone extremely stupid doing random stuff and then evil is done. And that person is evil. Hence the, not the benevolent of evil. The, uh, I forgot the actual. I forgot the actual. Phrase. <laughs> but you, you get the idea, and I feel like can't you say this the same to Hitler and Don Quixote? Somehow Hitler is just like Don Quixote, immersed inside his own world of fiction, and then it's through this constant pursuit of that, his his own ideal, which he inherited, same as Don Quixote from the past, as these ancient tales of of, I guess, anti-Semitism, that he, he was led to to this, to this the Second World War and all those deaths. Can, can one draw this almost parallel between Don Quixote and Hitler? So somehow Quixote both is both a tale for tale talking about the good, that is the Christian good, but also a tale talking about evil, the banality of evil. 
I think that you touch on a good point. And perhaps it is precisely that point which, which Cervantes is doing and illustrating here is that it is very lucky, perhaps, and, and this is perhaps something that um, you can view it as in perhaps another interpretation. I wouldn't say whether it's correct or not, but I think it's a reasonable one to say, as you say, that Don Quixote is a representation of society such that we we all have our ideals, which we either rationally and in most situations irrationally uphold. And it is the application and we have our fingers crossed and we're we're really, really lucky that the principles that we uphold are generally based on good ideals and not ones which are like Hitler. But you could see very similarly that they could have very easily gone very wrong. So I think that that is perhaps a very reasonable interpretation of, of the Quixote and perhaps can be taken to a further extreme, as I've just said, in society as a whole. Okay. Well, well to carry on the spirit of us trying to apply it to reality, how, how do you think can, can one escape from this Pijotian, uh, I guess, decadent romanticism, where you're, you're completely entrapped inside your own myth, and to almost look at yourself and to correct what, the, the own world that you're trapped in? Or do you think it's a desirable thing to get out of this quixotic state? So I, I guess there's two questions here. One is, what's your moral assessment of Quixote? Is, is, he a, is he a good figure, a bad figure, a figure that we want to emulate or one, uh, one that we want to escape from? And what is the antidote to the Quijotean state of, uh, I guess, ideological enmeshment? I think perhaps this is where Dostoevsky's genius comes in. And I think is the balance between Quijote and the idiot where we find the, the true answer to the solution to this problem. So I don't think it is correct to, to dismiss prima facie this Quijotean state. Because I think most of society works on this. And especially this is what we say when it comes to things of existential significance. What I mean by existential significance is that most of the times we don't we act based on um, a standard which is not necessarily based on any reason, but rather we accept it via some sense of Kierkegaardian leap of faith, for example. And and it could be religion, which is your existential significance, or for the atheist, it might be other things like alcohol or other other other. Um, things which are accepted by no reason at all, but rather they just do it because. And and you could say, well, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, I think we've, we could establish that either way you go, it is at the heart of the human condition to accept these things of existential significance without thinking much about. And perhaps this is what um, uh, we were developing previously, that the, the default human position is the chaotic state. But rather, in order to go beyond it, perhaps, is to precisely question your existential significance or your existential foundation and say, well, is that a rational and applicable one in our lives? And it is via questioning it and testing it against the calling of responsibility, perhaps, that allows you to escape it, not necessarily to change it, but rather to have a more profound understanding of it. And that might okay. be a better solution. I, I, I kind of want to challenge you here. So what I take your answer to be is that what, what we should do to reflect on the, the things that we take as our existential significance is to listen to the calling of responsibility and in such a way to reflect on whether this corresponds to the calling of responsibility. But for me, this, this seems slightly paradoxical because it seems that what we find existentially significant is exactly that which constructs out the calling of responsibility within us. So, and it's, it would seem to be difficult, almost impossible, for me to evaluate 
what I what I am right now or my current the current thing that I find existentially significant because what I find existentially significant determines the a matrix from which I value what I am doing right now in the sense that uh, you, you said we we should use rationality to evaluate what we're what we find existentially significant but we we need to find something existentially significant in order for us to ground something to be rational rather than other things so there seems to be this a circle that's that we cannot escape when we're trying to evaluate what we find existentially significant i think perhaps what you might be i think what we're disagreeing on could be the idea that you seem to suggest that we we somewhat start off with our calling our existential significance, which then leads to our calling of responsibility, which then perhaps leads back to the existential significance, or in fact, the fact that our existential significance isn't the fundamental foundation and that it could have been caused by something else. Rather, what I perhaps I'm trying to say is that we start off with the existential significance. The, the, the leap is precisely a linear leap, such that it is not circular. And it's precisely the lack of reason before it which leads us to adopt it, such that there is no circle kind of um, created. However, and I think that your second challenge, the idea that our calling of being or the calling of responsibility comes from existential significance, I will disagree with that because I think oftentimes people have existential significances which are veiled from their eyes. And it is that act of unveiling which allows them to understand the true existential significance. Because of course I'm putting this against a Christian backdrop. And it's this idea that while we may have existential significances which are veiled, uh, incorrect one, it is via the understanding of responsibility, the calling of moral understanding, no knowledge, which goes fundamentally, and that's the reason, the natural reason, perhaps in Aquinas, in Aquinas' terms, or Thomistic terms, is that understanding the innate intrinsic knowledge of the good, which allows the unveiling of the of the being and into the true one. Yeah. Well, I guess... I guess. The, then the question would be, and this may be my fundamental objection, that how can we how can we know that that which we find uh, find to be the innate good is actually the innate good? So how can we go from I find it so to it really is so? How can I almost uh, verify that it is it is the the real deal? Perhaps I can use an analogy from Les Miserables, and it's it's a song uh, sung by uh, Javert called Stars, and in and in in this song he says um, stars, and and each in their season returns and returns and stays always the same. And the question is this: is that you must the answer is that you don't fully understand exactly what it is, and you cannot judge it by via your understanding of others, because I think that the good is although based on somewhat objective groundings, is also on a, is, is a very subjective thing, in the sense that everyone's search towards the good. Their path to salvation has to be individual. And I think that that's a great Christian invention. However, in order to understand it, while we may not know definitively that it is good, the act of life is itself a constant questioning of the good and a constant wrestling with the burden of the good. And via constantly wrestling, that act would allow us to understand the good more and understand the depth more such that we can correct any misconceptions. And while we may never reach the bottom, it is that constant act of fighting, that struggling, which is the most important thing. Because, for example, the idea of Israel, he who wrestles with God, the same idea is that Israel doesn't stop being Israel when he stops fighting or wrestling with the being of God in the Genesis. He continues being Israel for multiple generations afterwards. And in, some, in, and in the same way, 
it is precisely that relationship. We constantly wrestle till the day we die. And, and it is that struggle which allows us to further our understanding of the good. You know, could, could one even say that it is the, the very wrestling with God that is the good? So it is, it is the constant wrestling and the constant questioning of who I am right now and whether my existentially, the, the thing that I find existentially significant is really significant that I, I become good. So the good is a process rather than the end goal. So it's, it's a constant digging that has no end. And it's in the act of digging that you get the good. But would you agree with sort of this interpretation? Mm -hmm. I think that that is true. I think that you're, um, it is that that's a very interesting interpretation. And I think your questioning of who am I is a very, very interesting question because I was reading interpretation which juxtaposes Kijote and Amushki. And it says that Kijote asks the question of who am I? And, but then the, the idiot asks the question, am I? And it's a deeper question to some degree. It's who am I is a question of, well, what exactly am, is my goal? What exactly, or what exactly, not, not what exactly is my goal, but rather what exactly am I meant to be? For example, Kijote is wrestling with his nature as um, the, the random uncle who's living in, in um, La Mancha, but then, um, but then he also wants to live a life of night errantry, which he sees in the books and in fiction. And then that's his questioning, well, who exactly am I? But perhaps a deeper question is the one question, question by Mushkin. He fundamentally knows who he is, but he just doesn't exactly know what his place is in the world. And in the fact that he's trying to do good doesn't necessarily achieve every, any good or not necessarily achieve any good, but rather he doesn't necessarily lead to the perfect outcomes, at least in the world. And there's that constant kind of self self-denial in relation to the world, despite doing what he seems as good, which is fundamentally, I think, a deeper question, perhaps. And there's that wrestling between the two levels of questioning. And, and I haven't illustrated this the best, but perhaps that's somewhere where we can start. Yeah, I kind of want to ask you to clarify the difference between this who am I and the am I. Because it does seem that to know to know who I am is also to know my place in the world. So when you said that Mushkin doesn't know his place in the world, I, I, I don't really understand what you mean. Because he simultaneously knows who he is whilst questioning the being of himself. And you said that his questioning of the being of himself is his not finding his own place in the world. Whereas am I, from, from how I understand it, in order to understand who I am, I already have to understand who I am in relationship to other people, because I'm somehow defined by other in this Sartrean way also. Perhaps this this way to look at it is is kind of like a, a orange. When you peel the who am I is like peeling the layers of the orange and then you reach the 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 fruit of the orange and you're like, well, that's the question of am I? By answering am I, you also understand who am I. But to answer the question of who am I is itself only uh, a superficial questioning, perhaps. And perhaps what Mushkin does has gone beyond the question of who am I? He understands his, perhaps his, his perhaps he understands his, what is good or what necessarily is his place, but he is further questioning exactly, exactly what he's meant to do in relationship to his place or in relationship to his world. And perhaps that is the, and of course they're somewhat tied up and I agree with you that kind of um that kind of discussion though i do think that there's a fundamental perhaps difference between the two between discussing who am i and well am i am i this person or am i 
am I, mm-hmm. I, I think I've gone to the edge of my own thinking here, perhaps. Yeah, yeah I, I think, I think we, we should clarify this. This is a very interesting discussion. Because I was trying to fit it with the scheme of there's a watchness of something, but also sort of the being of something. So, uh, for example, the watchness of me is that I have a ridiculous hair. I, I have a glasses. I don't know. Uh, I'm incredibly intelligent, <laughs> I'm very knowledgeable, very handsome. All of these. That's the whatness of Warren Zoo. <laughs> there's also the being of Warren Zoo, which is what kind of a person Warren Zoo is. Well, I guess what would what we're trying to do say here is that there is almost another level on top of the being of Warren Zoo of who I am and the kind of person I am, the mode of being that I am engaging in, whether I am loving, whether I am. Uh, disgusting of these and there's, there's this mode on top and i guess would you agree that we're, we're trying to investigate the mode above the mode of being and i'm just wondering how would you think what, what do you think goes beyond being here it seems it may be something theological or I, i'm not sure i think perhaps this is precisely that which is theological it is and perhaps that the difference between being and this um this this um, perhaps Mushkin-like questioning is it's precisely that this Mushkin-like questioning is is a state where like you're questioning God itself in some degree, not in the bad sense, but rather saying, well, well, I've done all that is good. What can I do more? And it is this constant questioning of like, well, I've already done everything I can, but it still fails. How, what am I meant to do now? And perhaps or this is... Or is it almost... A, a despair at the good, the questioning of my own, the, the being of myself. Or it's not the questioning of my specific being, but the questioning of being as such, or whether I am meant to be at all, or something similar to that. Indeed, I think that that is perhaps one of the, I think that's perhaps an interesting question. I think that that is one of the facets of this further questioning, because because one thing which we, we can differentiate between Kijota and, and Mushkin is precisely the idea that Mushkin is not idiotic, he's not ridiculous. Don Kijote is purposely written to be somewhat ridiculous, but Mushkin is not. Like, while he does come off in some of a ridiculous nature, he is not intrinsically ridiculous, and he's only ridiculous of because of societal standards, not because he is ridiculous in himself. And, and in the same way, perhaps what is occurring here is precisely the idea that is the idea that Mushkin as you say is indeed asking that further question about well what exactly what exactly is my role after I've done all my things or not necessarily my role but what exactly is beyond all these things and perhaps is that questioning of itself the good itself which is which is at the core of the question and I think that this is the tension that Dostoevsky is trying to create is that like, what if good leads to evil or what if good has no solution apart from evil? And you could put that against a theological state perhaps and say, well, what if Christ's sacrifice doesn't actually has no, has no great significance from it? Not necessarily because the sacrifice itself isn't significant, but rather that, even if Christ sacrificed, not a lot of people actually are receptive of that good. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a questioning of not only myself, but everything that is within my world, 
a questioning of maybe the fairness, the the order of the world, whether there is really an order there. And that's the questioning of I am rather than the questioning of who I am. Or would that be a good because I, I feel like you, you get this in college applications. It's, <laughs> it's like after you send out all of your applications, I think you begin this almost questioning of I am after receiving rejection upon rejection. <laughs> I think we could be lucky and say we haven't received that many rejections yet, but rather it's purely just a waiting time, and and we ha we've been spared the angst of the rejection so far. Or, or or maybe maybe I think I I, I did it I said it the wrong way, and it's not the setting of rejections after rejections, but it's the emptiness that comes after sending out all of your applications and waiting for a rejection. I think it's a, it's a waiting for the rejection, and this links with your interpretation almost of waiting for Gurdot. Of this, it's the waiting for the perfect, <laughs> the perfect Gurdot that you have the questioning of the I am rather than the attaining of the end goal, which is the questioning of who I am. Which who I am is still something. I am something. Whereas the questioning of I am is not quest the questioning of singness at all, but the questioning of the of the temporal gap in the middle of existence. Mm -hmm. And perhaps to push that even further, it's not necessarily the the knowledge of the rejection, but rather the knowledge that, or the waiting for a possible rejection, but the knowledge that you actually know you are going to be rejected. And that is exactly what you're waiting for, even though you know you were too good for the universe or your good application, and you, but you still know you're going to be rejected. And perhaps that, that is the precise the secret that um, the idiot is trying to put possess and perhaps that is in some way what Dostoevsky means a tragedy of humankind or perhaps a tragedy of Christianity that is precisely part of the struggle where you know that you're going to fail but and you're waiting for the failure but at the same time you still have to do the good and that's perhaps the burden in Christianity and perhaps the despairness of when Christ dies on the cross you see the the darkness and the, the earthquake is precisely the fact that God does everything he could as the good but still knows and is waiting, despite knowing that the rejection, the the evil, is going to come from the good. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a it's a chasing of something, even though you know that you're going to be disappointed by it. So the pursuit of the thing, because you know that it's the best option, despite it not being at the same time the best option, because of some consequences from it. And it is this gap that makes the questioning of the I am. I feel like this links very well with the the Lacanian death drive. You know the example that I really love to give. You have uh you have the 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 gorilla and the gorilla <laughs> mates another gorilla a female gorilla and then the female gorilla rejects the male gorilla. I think it's chimpanzee, but I'll just say gorilla. <laughs> then the male gorilla just goes to a, a lesser female gorilla. But it, it's not the same for for human males. You just you constantly pursue the female, even though you know that. You, that there won't be any fruition. And even more than this, this has been what I've been reflecting on more. It's the, the fact that you know that the female you're pursuing isn't any good, but you still can't help but to pursue that female. That constitutes the questioning of the I am. You're ineluctably drawn towards the good. The good is sovereign to you, even though the good itself may not be may itself not lead to anything but you, you still can't help but to feel the calling of that responsibility and that's the tragedy mm -hmm. we, we have gone into a very tragic place it feels indeed. very sad i think that that is precisely the 
the question or the Christian question that is being asked here is that you can choose to do not you can choose to do bad or evil and it will not lead to evil or it will not lead to tragedy. But the question is, and that's a challenge, the Christian challenge perhaps is this, is that are you going to do the good despite knowing that it may cause even further evil? And will you do that good despite that evil that it may cause? And that is exactly the Christian question at the heart of um, the idiot and uh, the Christian narrative. Would you say that under this interpretation, it would be that somehow the, the world is not ordered in such a way that you can have the good, but rather, I feel like we're going, you're, you're being, being, this is more Gnostic than properly Christian, this interpretation. Somehow there's, there's evil already in good and you can never go into the full good. Or is the full good itself already evil? I, I'm not sure how would you square a God that is good with the goodness of being or the goodness of being in non-theological terms with this interpretation of this evil that comes with the good, which leads to the questioning of I am. I think it is this. It's that it's that God, despite being wholly good, ultimately has a result in evil. Not necessarily to say that God causes the evil or that God is not good, but rather it is precisely the calling of God, despite doing all the good, that it is the tragedy of human condition which leads to the evil, such that there is kind of that dialectic which is fighting constantly in the idea that the good is incompatible, not necessarily incompatible, but is at odds with the tragedy of humankind, the freedom of humankind, the despotism in Dostoevsky's works. And it's precisely when you combine the two together, which says you have to do the good, humans have the opportunity to choose the good. But despite choosing to do the good, most people choose not to. And when those two things collide, choosing to do the good ultimately is only emphasized by evil or is or is met by evil and further evil. And it provides further opportunity for evil to occur. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm still quite confused. Does the, where does the evil originate here? Does it originate in freedom? And if it originates in freedom, does freedom generate more good than evil? Or can you can you even weigh good and evil on a scale? I would say that it's impossible to weigh good and evil on the scale. And perhaps and perhaps what we're trying to look at here is is the idea that you start off with humans being free and, and humans being free is itself the tragedy, perhaps. And that humans have the choice to do either good or have a choice to do evil. And when they're put together and you say, well, some humans are doing good, that good, humans doing good, most commonly lead to people abusing the good of the humans, which leads to more evil. For example, the the, the Mushkin in, in Dostoevsky's The Idiot precisely leads to more evil despite being good. And that's the dialectic that Dostoevsky is struggling with. The idea that Christ comes down to to, to earth to give a full example of the good but despite coming to earth he doesn't change so much because so many people reject him and even people who claim to be following him do not actually follow him and and that is itself a tragedy and it is that struggling between following christ and not following christ which is at the heart of the human dilemma and by following christ oftentimes it leads to further evil because it just leads people to abuse the people even more the people doing good 
then then why why the hell should we follow Christ? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Because precisely it is that choice of doing good which makes it worthwhile. And that's why I say that the, the road to salvation has to be, in its end, individualistic. It cannot be the crowd. And this is the Kierkegaardian idea that the crowd is untruth, is that everyone's struggle for the good has to come by an individualistic way. And when we, when we, uh, Kubrick, my nose really and, feels really uncomfortable. It's really blocked. So I, I'm no worries. And when we overcome, and, and it is precisely that choosing of the good that we have to embark on this journey, like Mushkin, despite its possible outcomes. Okay, so, well, again, we, we come back to the same question. What do you mean, then, by this pursuing of the good, to put, put, put it down to the practical level from the metaphysical? It's, it's good for us to talk about how we should follow the good despite all the evil it can create. But how can we identify what the good is if... <laughs> Because everything we do creates evil and also creates some good, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is by struggling with that calling of responsibility and constantly struggling with oneself again and again, which constitutes of how we're meant to figure out what exactly is good. And and I think we have guidance like uh, the Bible or uh, teachings and the wisdom of tradition. But at the same time, we have to constantly question ourselves again and again constantly question the the tradition such that while we can use it as a guide we still develop our relationship with christ on an individualistic basis no. I, so i, I have to admit more, what i've just uh, said probably would come off as quite heret, heret, heretical to um <laughs> some people and that and they might not like me too much but i think that, that is the best way to look at it well the, the more cynical view is why should you listen to the guide or what why should you listen to? Because isn't this the, the same question that Don Quixote is struggling to? Don Quixote is almost too enmeshed in a certain tradition that it, he fails to perceive reality because tradition blinds him, history blinds him. And in the same way, how, how can we have a proper relationship to history when we're constantly questioning and we're not settling for anything? And another question is how does this constant questioning lead to any evil? It doesn't, doesn't seem to be that this constant questioning would lead to evil if that is the good it seems like it would only be a thing that is net a net gain perhaps the answer is this is that it's not the questioning which leads to evil it is the application of that questioning in our lives which leads to evil when we actually achieve the good and perhaps to take this further is to say this, it's that the good, I think, is something which has to be struggled with and wrestled with. And and the difference between Don Quixote and the good is precisely that the good is individualistic, whereas the, the story is universal. And that by approaching it in an individualistic way, such that it goes from... It, goes from the out the the external into the internal which is the most important thing whereas in don quixote he's trying to put himself into the tradition instead of the other way around and letting the tradition guide him and there's perhaps a two different a different way in order to put this around okay 
it's the application of the process of questioning into our actual lives that creates evil. Mm -hmm. Definitely, the question I think many would ask when they hear your definition of the good is why the why the hell do you call it good <laughs> if it results in that evil? Because it is because that's a tr the consequence of this trap. I think is that. By doing the good, we cause we give the opportunity and the role models for other people to choose good. And it is precisely that opportunity, which is also perhaps good as well. But rather, people most of the times, instead of using that opportunity to do good, they use the opportunity to do evil, and such that they abuse the opportunities arisen to them. And it's kind of like that situation where people start complaining on socialist websites, say, well, oh, the other people learn so much, they earn so much money. Like, they get all the opportunities in front of them. It's like the Princeton uh, girls, like, complaining about, oh, the, the system is so rigged against uh, poor people, or it's so rigged against certain people, and certain people get rich. Like, you have a, a whole load of opportunities ahead of you at Princeton. Stop complaining about the situation. Why do I see the next story you post is a video of you, like, drinking and going out to party? Like, if you wanted to be as successful as everyone else, stop partying and work hard. Like, the very fact of them complaining against the good, their act of evil against the good in front of them, precisely points towards the good, even though they fundamentally do it in an evil way. I hope that makes sense. I'm not sure if it makes sense. Okay. Because I, I guess there, there is almost a terminological confusion here, or conceptual confusion, of what I think of as evil and what you think of as evil. Because what I think of as evil is something that's as, as bad, qualitatively, as the good is good. So in this sense, evil is also incomparable to the good. So when you have something evil happen, you can't uh, you can't feel it and almost comp compensate for that the happening of that evil through any good. And what 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 it seems from from what I heard you're saying is that this giving of the opportunity of good, just the mere goodness, leads directly to an almost. It's rescuing of all the evil in the world. And in this sense, it's the, there's an asymmetry. What I see is an asymmetry between the good and the evil under your conceptual scheme, where a tiny bit of good trumps all evil. And also, by the way, disclaimer, we, we don't know any Princeton girls who, <laughs> who go out partying and drinking after they complain about the system. Right, Princeton, do not kick us out. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still waiting for their decision. <laughs> <laughs> this is purely what, what what's that thing they put in books uh, any um any matters of coincidence with real life events are not intentional and should not be considered as such or something like that you know that disclaimer yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay go back going back to serious business what do you see this as asymmetry between good and evil mm. i'll definitely say that there is in some sense an asymmetry in in the idea that one i think I think this is true, is the idea that one bit of goodness is enough to redeem a lot of the evil, such that if there's only one, and this is the Bible quote, if, if there was only just one righteous person in the town, I would have saved the town, even despite all the evil. And I think that that is precisely the case. I, no, I think it's five, right? In, no, it was ten, and then it was like, if there was a hundred, and, and it dropped down to ten, and then five. And I think it's in another area where it also said, if there's only one person, I'll, that'll make it justified. But I think that in both situations, it's saying the same, that a bit of good is, is justifiable for the amount of evil. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I feel like maybe 
we shouldn't use evil so frivolously when we're talking. Perhaps we can say that good leads to a lot of bad, but it doesn't necessarily lead to evil. Because when I picture evil, it's almost someone doing evil for the sake of evil. Someone who's really just torturing something for the sake of torturing that person, not even deriving any pleasure uh, pleasure in, in the torturing or any pleasure in showing other people torturing or not gaining any gain. But you just want to wreak havoc on the world for the sake of wreaking havoc. And th that's what I picture evil to be compared to just merely bad. Would you say that maybe good may lead to a lot of bad, but it, it doesn't really lead to evil? I think perhaps the main dis disagreement between us is precisely, as you've said, our conceptual discussion about good and evil are perhaps two completely different uh, concepts, perhaps. I think evil I think evil and bad are perhaps similar to me, at least in the idea that the, fa the failing to answer to the calling of responsibility is itself an evil, perhaps. And, and, and it doesn't need to be so extreme to just be doing evil for the sake of doing evil. But rather, evil itself can be found in the act of, of seeing a person in the street and not, and you have a calling to help them, but you do not help them. It could be so little or so big as as even small actions about just interacting on a daily basis, getting angry over no for no reason at someone. Not necessarily because you want to get angry for no reason, but rather you you disproportionately get angry at someone that would be considered evil as well so i think that perhaps my definition is perhaps more broader than than your evil well i'll give you my definition of evil in relation to this calling of responsibility and let's see whether we can sort out this conceptual confusion so for me the bad is when you hear the calling of responsibility and you're sort of drawn to it but other things pull you a bit more and you you fail to meet your responsibility and let's see and, and then there's also evil there's maybe two kinds of evil. One kind of evil is radical evil. This radical evil is when you you completely ignore the calling responsibility. Like, oh, uh, you hear it. Like, fuck you. I don't really care about that. Just go on with your life without uh, caring about the calling of responsibility. And then this is one kind of evil. It's also another kind, which is the diabolical evil, which was what I was sort of explaining then. It's almost pairing the calling of responsibility and intentionally, like, oh, hell yeah. I hear, I hear you now, and I just act completely differently to what the call of responsibility uh, does. And in this sense, I would say that doing good only leads to badness. The opportunity for good only leads to badness, but not necessarily evil. Or if it leads to evil, then the good can't really be justified. Well, I, I think that what we're perhaps disagreeing here is precisely the idea that uh, while I think what we mean by causing evil might be a bit different because I don't think it necessarily causes evil in the sense that it directly causes evil, but rather it leads to opportunities which ultimately are met with evil instead of good, even though those opportunities could have been received with good instead. Okay. So for example, if I if I if I kind of was very open to helping and and uh, supporting a certain activities within Shaftesbury House, for example, and then, and in response to this, uh, someone just went along and and then just started to do nothing because they know I'll carry them anyways. That is an opportunity which leads to evil, and it has been done by evil. But rather, if I do good, that leads more opportunities for other people to take, and them also to take responsibility. So that there's that dual aspect, and that's exactly what happened in the idiot. By doing good, Mushkin allows for other people to do good as well, or at least 
reflect on him and use him as a role model. But it's precisely him doing good, which leads him to be abused by other people and taken advantage of. So I think yeah, that there's I, that dual aspect. I feel like, no, no, what I would disagree here is, I don't really disagree with the characterization of what Mushkin is doing, what the good is doing. It seems like the good is something that almost creates creates the calling for other people to do good. But in, in the idiot, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like Mushkin is an idiot. And it would be a complete catastrophe if everyone was like Mushkin compared to doing the good as creating opportunities for every other people to do good. And if it's only in the sense of creating opportunities for other people to do good, like you taking up your responsibility and other people seeing you taking up your responsibility gets, a res gets an opportunity to do more responsibility. Then I don't think there's anything objectionable. And when we say that here, it creates more evil. It's merely the creation... It's merely the fact that other people do not receive the calling of duty rather than positively doing anything different than what they would do then. But I feel like there's a stronger interpretation here that you have to put on the idiot rather than just Mushkin is purely doing something good, which if everyone follows, the world will be a wonderful place. But I think that that is precisely where we disagree with. I think you're falling into the, the idea of... of um of perhaps Dostoevsky viewing this as not idiotic in some sense. Rather, I think that the correct way to look at it is, is something else, is precisely to say this, is that, is that people... The thing is, it's that perhaps what Dostoevsky is trying to say is that it is inconsequential to think about whether what happens if everyone decided to act like Mushkin. But rather, despite how people may respond, Mushkin is himself ridiculous not because his actions are ridiculous but because of societal's view of mushkin which makes him ridiculous and to separate the two is to fall into society's trap perhaps a society that that dostoevsky was critiquing so much mm -hmm. to some degree to say that well perhaps we must in some degrees work as mushkin despite the possible abuse that must occur and of course we have to act with reason and wisdom in these situations and we can't just be idiots but at the same time, it is by balancing the two, which is the most important, perhaps. Well, what I guess I find problematic with this interpretation is somehow the good is, uh, the, the, the action of the good is trans-historical, trans-cultural, uh, completely independent of what is happening around you. Rather, it seems like in order for you to want to do a good action, you have to take consideration take into consideration what other people will react to your action and how, how society will receive it. So I, I, I don't really like this interpretation of it is everything bad is the society and you should just do whatever you want then. And if the society doesn't take up, then uh, let, it, let it be like that. They, don't, they just didn't take up the opportunity to do good. Instead, it, it, it does seem that, that the very act of doing good takes into consideration the badness of society and tries through giving society opportunities which they may in fact take up rather than opportunities that they will not take up uh, improve the net good in the society. I'll disagree with you on this because I think that perhaps what we're seeing here is two different kind of modes or two different forms of discussion because what I'm trying to say here is not necessarily the idea that oh uh, we should just completely ignore what um what is being done but rather I think that the call of responsibility itself changes in in, in each society, but even if you did follow the call of responsibility to every single extreme, 
oftentimes a calling of responsibility will lead you to situations, a calling of the good will lead you to situations where it still leads to negative effects. And it's precisely that despite of those negative effects, you continue still fighting for that good, which is the most important thing. Perhaps that's the difference between the two ideas. Yeah, I, I guess what I, my, my conception would be that the calling of the good, if it's a real calling, would adapt to the, the situation at hand. And what it does is there was this Aristotelian phrenesis where you, where you react to the context and does the appropriate thing in the context rather than something that is uh, completely unreasonable under the, the situation. Like, for example, the famous Kantian uh, scenario of lying to, uh, lying to a murderer in order to save your, your neighbor. Why well, I'm not sure. Wait, wait, do you finish what you're saying? Like you, you like this is exactly what I was. I was thinking. I, I wasn't fully sure about your tone. Like you're like lying to your neighbor. I wasn't sure if you were finished with your sentence. Okay, okay. But rather, okay. I Sorry. Think, I think, I'll, I'll, I'll try to end think, in, in a down right now. Later. Yes. I think. I think perhaps the, the the answer is this: is that is that actions itself are are to some sense. I'm not sure. Perhaps actions are themselves in some sense good in the sense that, yes, you shouldn't be fully ignorant of the, the consequences of your actions. But at the same time, we shouldn't like the consequences aren't always bad. Like if you have a full situation where the consequences aren't fully bad, you can conceive of a situation where you actually have you have actual actual good things to come out of it. For example, if you. Like, like that shot, for example, why what I was saying wasn't fully the situation to say, well, oh, um, it, it must cause evil or, oh, there must be despotism as a result of my actions. But rather, the whole situation is itself open to good and bad interpretations, such that when, when choosing between good and evil, we are precisely that being torn between those two good and evils. Or at least when we're judging the conclusion, we're saying, well, yes, it's most likely to lead to evil but it also has the potential for some good. And perhaps that potential for some good, I wouldn't say necessarily outweighs the bad, but is itself justified in itself. And that's important. Yeah, so then where, where does the evil come from? Does the evil arise out of the good or the opportunity to do good? Yeah. Well, I think it arises from the, I don't say it arises from the opportunity to do good, but rather... Perhaps it's this, is that it arises from the, how would I say? It arises from, the, I'm not, I'm not, it like, when we're judging the actions, I'm, I don't want to say that we're not focusing on its consequences. I think that we have to take into consideration some sense of the consequences of our actions. But at the same time, despite that, when we're discussing good and evil, instead of taking it fully out of its consequences, what we have to say is that we have to do right or at least follow the calling of responsibility. And when we follow the calling of responsibility, yes, it takes into consideration it's, uh, the negative effects, but the negative effects aren't fully tied down to all just what you know will happen, but also what could possibly happen as well. And when Mushkin looks at the situation, Perhaps he doesn't fully understand the fact that people will abuse him. And that might be one of his flaws. However, when we look at our interactions with the world, we must look at the both situations and say, well, 
yes, maybe sometimes, perhaps sometimes when we're interacting with evil, we're talking about that interaction with someone else. And we look at someone else and say, well, that person may respond to us in a different form. And we look at a third person and say, well, that person may also have a different response. We have to judge every single person's response. And while they all might respond with evil, there's also the potential that your good action may act as a role model or actually as a model for them to do good and follow you. So I don't think there's necessarily a direct tie between the two to say, well, oh, just that it leads to a majority evil, that it's suddenly all bad. Your action is bad. You can take into consideration that the fact that it most likely would lead to evil, but that isn't the full picture of the situation. Because okay. there's well, a potential. I, I think there's maybe two different conceptions of leading to evil that we're mixing together here. One type of leading to evil is just really leading to something bad happening. Like Mushkin, uh, I, I, one scene I remember is that he goes to a party and he just smashes everything accidentally. That's mm -hmm. one type of trying to do the good and leading to evil. But there's also another type where it's I do the good, therefore I provide opportunities for other people to do the good and emulate them. And they fail to follow my example. Therefore, that's another type of evil of I, I act as a medium for the calling and responsibility and they don't take up the calling. So there's almost a positive and negative aspect of leading to evil. And I just wonder how does this scheme fit to what you're talking about right now? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the question is perhaps the idea of, well, I think that in order to respond to this idea, the one must separate those two. And I think you're very correct in the sense that we have to separate between the two because, because of course, there's good intention people who accidentally lead to evil. But, but there is a difference between that action and also when they are, when they are um, perhaps, <laughs> your, your face is too chunk. But then there's also a difference between um, how you are, the causes or the responses to them. Because I think when we're talking about Mushkin and his uh, interactions with the other people, in the, in the first sense, in the party, you would say that he is, in that situation, truly an idiot. He, he tries his best, but is perhaps absurd in that sense. He, he's just like kind of done a stupid thing. And I think that that actually was, was not necessarily because he intentionally did that evil, but if I remember correctly, and I haven't read The Idiot in ages, to be honest, but it was kind of the idea that he, he had a seizure, didn't he? Because Mushkin always gets seizures. I think he had a seizure. He was falling into a trance. And in that trance of idiocy, perhaps, that that led to his discussion of, or uh, perhaps his a destruction of everything around him. So I wouldn't say that is fully his fault because he unfortunately had a seizure, which is generally an unfortunate thing. But, but perhaps that is a different category from what we're discussing here, because what we're discussing here is precisely that relationship between good and evil, which is more interesting, perhaps. Well, I, I, I think there's also another thing that we have to think about. You talked about how you have the seizure and it's a very unfortunate thing. How does this account of good and evil uh, square with natural evil or the happening of different illnesses, diseases, contingent events that destroys everything, hurricanes, natural, I don't know, disasters, all of these? How, how does, are those evil? Are those indifferent? Or are those, are those even good, like opportunities for us to do good? Well, I wouldn't say they're necessarily good as in the intention of the good, but rather they they do they are perhaps good acts in the sense that they provide opportunities. But now, do you want to um talk a bit about uh, what Danny says in the comment section right now? He says, "What's the question? Um, where does evil come from? From uh, where does evil come from?" You're asking. I I think. <clears throat> do you remember what the question we actually started off when we started this discussion? 
because I think we, we were talking a bit about Quixote and then we, we started talking a bit more onto this side question of the good in the idiot, which, which is an interesting discussion, but I'm not necessarily sure exactly how we got here. But I think the question perhaps is, was the idea of, is the idiot actually a good character? And perhaps in perspective of how we're meant to interpret the idiot. Do you think that that was a question which got us here? Yeah, and also, it's also the problem of uh, the relationship between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And 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 perhaps the second thing he said was asking explanations for why evil or good occurs seems like a fruitless question if moral particularism is true. There's not going to be a theory or laws of what instantiates good and evil since they're not natural entities. You're treating good and evil like a physical. Um... Okay, do you should we invite Danny onto the Danny onto the stream? I I would disagree with what he's saying. That's what I was trying to. Let's you let's invite. Should we invite Danny onto the stream first? Though? Okay, okay. But that, that's uh, what I was. The, the 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 treating of the good and evil. Okay, as, I'll, I'll put it in the comment section. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the treating of good and evil as a physical entity is what I was trying to steer you away from. I think what we came to is that good is a process, rather than a rather than a thing. But then I think what, what he said is interesting. Then what, what the hell is evil? Is evil also a process? Or what is it, Josh? Okay, Josh is busy sending links. Oh, oh, I, yeah, I, I posted on the chat and he said send the link, but I'm not sure whether he saw it. Hopefully he uh, saw it. No, but I think I think what we're talking about is not a natural process. We're not talking about it as if it's um as if it's an actual physical thing in the sense of natural entity. Rather, and we're not talking about it as a physical kind of interactionism kind of sense of mechanical causation, but rather what we're saying is that it leads to an opportunity which causes evil. And that's different, perhaps. The, 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 the good hey, is Danny, how are you? Hey, guys, how are you? I'm yes. good. We have, we have a third person joining our chat, War <laughs> Jew. Give me a second. Give me a second. I have to no worries. off the other stream. All good. Good morning, guys. I know it's morning there probably, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's currently it's three afternoon. in the afternoon. It's actually five it, in the it, afternoon. Can I come up? It's five in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, you come through great. Oh, okay. It's yeah. like 3 a.m. here. Oh, man. Okay. What are you doing Good. at 3 a.m. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this is what I do for a living. Is yeah. uh, But uh, just a little bit about my background. I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy. I'm getting my master's degree in philosophy. My views, though, they're very smart people that disagree with me. Um, they're very, you know, way more educated, much more, you know, like I, people I look up to that disagree with me. So don't, don't, um, I'm not, I'm no authority, but I like the, this kind of topic, but, um, so there's like two things here. Um, one is you're trying to pull out a philosophy from the literature, right? That's just exegetical, meaning like you're just, you want to give the, the best interpretation of Don Quixote. Um, and then there's like the the kind of meta-ethical questions that y'all are asking, right? And so I, I'll tell you, I don't I don't know anything about the philosophy of Don Quixote, right? So if that's what you're asking, that I'm no good for that, right? But it seemed like I joined in the stream, you were asking questions that are that were sort of peripheral to the philosophy and that can be kind of extracted from Don Quixote. Am I getting this right? Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we were talking about um, Don Quixote, and then it t- tied in a bit to the idiot, and then we were discussing about the ethics of um, Mushkin in the idiot, and whether like his approach is correct, and and whether the interpretation is correct as well. So there was a bit of 
perhaps a bit of an interaction there as well. I see. Okay. And then y'all were talking about, then when I came in, y'all were entertaining the question about where does evil come from? And are you trying to answer that question in light of the, liter the, the text, or are you trying to answer that question more so independently of the text? I think it's both. It's uh, we're using the text as almost a springboard for our own discussions, and what what I guess we were asking in terms of where evil comes from is Josh has the idea that <laughs> there's this crazy interpretation of Dostoevsky where <laughs> the the Christian the Christian project is you have the good and that it's the taking up of the cross of the good where it necessarily leads to evil. That makes the take that makes the doing of the good. <laughs> the best thing to do. So it's precisely the leading to evil that makes the good good. And that, that's what we were sort of discussing. That's, that's the main issue here. Well, I wouldn't say that that's the complete interpretation of, of what I'm trying to say, but rather that when, when, that when you're doing the good, it unfortunately leads to a lot of evil events or at least opportunities to lead to evil events. And that's perhaps yeah, so the, the, What's the interesting there is, so it seems, it doesn't seem disagreeable to think that doing something good might lead to undesirable consequences or doing something bad might lead to desirable or even good consequences. But where it gets kind of weird is where you put the word necessity. Okay. So when you say this good action caused this evil event or this evil event caused this good event, um, that's, I think where I'm on board with that. But when you say good necessarily leads to evil or this type of good event necessarily leads to these sorts of consequences, then I think that that necessity can only be understood if you're invoking kind of laws or theories of such things, right? And so that's what I took issue with in the chat, that I don't really think that you can talk about um, laws of causality with respect to the good. Um, and because I think laws of causality only really belong to natural phenomena. Now that's a little bit contentious, but um, that's where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. Well, I think perhaps we were using necessarily in perhaps two different ways, because I'm not sure whether I get you correctly, but I, I'm definitely not talking about necessarily causes evil in, in the modal sense that it must ne it necessarily causes, like A necessarily causes B perhaps. That's perhaps not what I'm trying to uh, say here, but rather perhaps it's used in a very broad, more psychological term, perhaps, instead of a philosophical one, to say that it most commonly, when provided with such good, leads to evil. And that, and is that idea, perhaps, if you tie in, perhaps, if you just grant the Christian hypothesis first, that when you go on the cross, you, you kind of know exactly, like, God knows exactly that his actions may potentially lead to evil, and will lead to evil, because he has foreknowledge. And it is precisely that understanding that despite knowing that it will lead to evil he still does it because that is good mm -hmm. even though it provides opportunities for for further good to occur mm -hmm. and i guess in my more Kantian language i would say that what, what we're talking about is necessity is almost the the good is the condition for the possibility of evil as in when you're it's the giving of the opportunity can you say that again to do Warren, can you say that again yeah. i need to yeah, make yeah, sure i understood that the, the good is the condition for the possibility of evil in the sense that when when you have something good happening it is also a simultaneously simultaneous possibility for evil to happen because it's the giving of the opportunity for someone to make an ethical act which leads both to the good and the evil so that that's the kind okay, of there, that so it's what you just said was very 
very um there's a lot to impact there because a lot you said some some really interesting things so let me kind of reform what you're saying and then you tell me if i'm tracking um yeah so if it's the case that i should do something what i think there is that it allows the possibility of success or failure so let's say it's true that i should not steal now notice that there's no implication that i will steal or not steal right it Given the truth of that normative claim, that oughtn't, right, it entails the possibility of either, okay? Yeah. Now, that's not exactly what you said. What what you exact, what I understood what you exactly said was something like, given the fact there's something good that happened. So let's say, um, let's say it's true that I ought not steal, and let's say that I acted in a way where I chose not to steal when I was deliberating between whether to steal or not, okay? So that's something... I did the right thing by not stealing. Um, mm-hmm. um, so how can you help me connect what I just said with what you yeah. just said? Okay. I think that the, the next step is, uh, and this is where we took our discussion is once I do something good, then I give other people the possibility, the, the chance to emulate me as a good example. Therefore I create a ton of possibilities for people to do evil by giving them the chance to do good by me myself doing good. Oh, okay. That that I'm, I'm that's quite confusing. Um, so, so I, I guess this sounds like. So you're saying that if you do something good, people will take you as some kind of model, and then they're and and they'll understand themselves certain moral imperatives, which allow for the possibility of doing yeah. right or wrong action is that kind yeah, of or even saying? yeah or even generalizing this a bit more it's when you're doing something good part of something being good it's not only that it's just an action but it's also it also has the potential to enable more good to happen so that's in it's in the nature of the good that it draws out more good and it is within this nature that it also necessarily uh, enables the possibility for evil to happen Okay, so I'm gonna say something. I'm gonna characterize your view and almost near in a near straw man like way because I know what I'm about to. The way I'm about to characterize your view, you're gonna be like, "That's not what I'm saying," but that's what it sounds like. Okay, so it's sort of like this to me. What I'm hearing is something like, "Well, does food cause stomach aches?" Um, yeah, except when it doesn't, right? Um, and so the idea here is that you're saying you're given a com- con- some kind of causal picture here where like. Or where you're saying if there's a good thing, well, then there could be further instantiations of either good or bad. Um, But we don't want to say something like if there's good, well, that could instantiate some further good, except when it doesn't. Right. So I I don't think you're trying to say that, but that's how it's coming across. Okay. I guess maybe what I would say is that the possibility for you to instantiate some further good is simultaneously the possibility for you to instantiate some evil. So this giving a possibility is indifferent to whether it's the possibility for good or for evil. It's the provision of possibility that is the key here. So it's the same so as I was discussing before. Okay. Can you give uh, the me example like an example? Is the, the example, let's say it's uh, the example, Josh's example. He said he, he, uh, he there's a house music competition since out of school. And what happens is, He's normally given a ton of jobs to do because no one else in his house wants to do any of those jobs. And he, what he says is by him doing 
all of those things, he he acts almost as a model from which other people he gives other people the the chance to follow him and also to make the project better. But a lot of the times people don't take up that possibility. And what we're sort of exploring is whether that's not taking up the possibility of good uh, is evil. And perhaps, I, well, I don't necessarily agree with all about what Warren says about his Kantian uh, structure. I don't necessarily agree with him about that. I do think that perhaps, perhaps just in simpler terms, I think what his, at least the second part about the possibility for good and evil was kind of similar to what we were discussing about previously when we were, when you just f first joined the chat about kind of it, any action has a potential for good and evil. And that perhaps is a, 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 another formulation of it. And I'm not exactly sure whether that's exactly what Warren is trying to say here, but but I, at least I mean, it is somewhat. In terms of God, maybe, because y'all are theists. So Warren's an atheist, uh, agnostic. Warren's an agnostic, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if we're saying in terms of God, would yeah. you say that everything that God does is good? I would say that God is perhaps the best understanding of what we know of as good. But then I would not necessarily, because I think it is, I wouldn't say I'm a completely a, a divine command theorist, where I say that basically whatever God says is good. I don't think that's necessarily the best way to look at it. Rather that beside what we know of as God, we do not, we do not have any other faculty or at least understanding of what is good. Such that I think you're giving epistemological um, consideration, like how how is it that we come to know the good? Well, God is the best means of coming to know the good. That's going to be true on whether you're a divine command theorist or not. For instance, you brought up Kant, Warren. Kant thought that God was more like a barometer of good, not the determiner of good. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, whereas someone like a divine command theorist would ontologically ground goodness in, in terms of either a command or a property or the nature essence of God, but the idea here, my question was to try to understand Warren's claims, maybe. Um, the idea is that if if God, if there's a world in which there's only God, God's the only agent, and he acts, right? Um, he's only going to act um, in a right way, right? He's not going to ever do the wrong thing, right? So if that's co a coherent picture, that means that um, doing right action, right, doesn't have doesn't involve itself with the possibility of doing wrong action right but i didn't know if that could help tie in with what warren was saying given maybe warren has a, uh issues with the way that theists construe the um i guess the ontological grounding of good but i don't i'm not so sure but i i, I guess i'm having i am having a hard time understanding what warren was saying um and i was hoping that may uh that maybe if he were a theist that maybe understanding the lens of God's actions as always being either morally permissible or right. Um, uh, that world in which he acts is going to preclude the possibility of doing evil. So I didn't know how that kind of meshed yeah. with his, what he was saying. Okay. Or maybe uh, to, to put it in the, the theistic framework, perhaps what we can say is that linking with the question of evil, it would be that God could not have created good without creating any evil or to to enable the possibility for any good to happen is also to enable the possibility of evil to happen okay, so now, okay. Two, yeah. why is that true why would why would a theist accept that i think it's in the nature of the claim i think you should do x means that you, there's a possibility for you to not not do x and you have to freely choose to do x 
in order for the choosing of that X to be good. Therefore, it because you can freely choose X, you can also freely choose not, not X. Therefore, the enabling of the possibility of good is also the enabling of the possibility of evil. Therefore, uh, almost the, the question of evil is a false question. And that's it's. Okay. I, I understood the first part of what you were saying. I think I understood the first part of what you're saying. And it makes sense to me. I think it might be a, a slight problem for theism. The idea is that if God always does the good, what would it mean to say that he should do something if not just that he does it, right? The idea is that if there's a prescription unto God, right, if we take a prescription as leaving the future open into in terms of success or failure, right, and and God— I'm Sorry, started, I, I need to talk to someone. Okay. I think he could well, probably still hear us, though, so he could probably continue speaking. He normally still continues to hear what we're saying when he disappears. No problem. But the idea is that I think what Warren is saying, at least in the first part of what he was saying, is that if God has a prescription and he's but he's a sort of being that always is um, in accord with that prescription. In what sense would it be a prescription if prescriptions allow for the possibility of success or failure? I think that that's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Warren, do is you that what he's saying? it's dinner time but i'm just telling them that i need to finish the conversation before before i go to dinner yeah that's, that's basically what happened but, sorry, sorry high you, yeah high school students. yeah oh my goodness uh, okay so i teach high school students so that's i teach <laughs> philosophy to 17 18 year olds at my my my, my so this is just um <laughs> Okay, anyways, moving on. Um, I think what, Warren, you're saying is that kind of what I was saying earlier, that what it means to say that I should do something leaves the possibility of either being in accord or out of accord with that, being doing the good thing or doing the evil thing in the sense that doing whatever's against that norm is evil, right? Um, so with respect to the God, God's actions, if God is the sort of thing that always does the good, what weight does a prescription actually have, right? If we say that God should do X, that just sort of entails that he's, that X is happening, right? Doesn't really leave that future or that possibility, the other possibility uh, open at all, right? Yeah. So that's to say that if you, God it sort of operates like a mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that really it's indistinguishable to say that, that uh, if, if it's true that God's in control and you, sh- and it's true that he should do X, and it's true that he's always in accord with whatever odds, right? Then you should, God, uh, if God has a prescription, uh, I should do X. It's just synonymous with X happening, right? Is that kind of like the idea that you come from? Yeah, okay. similar. And I don't think Christian would really like this, but perhaps what I would even say is that yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a categorical confusion for us to apply the predicate good onto God because, the, as, as I said before, what God, every action that God does, is necessary and if 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 it's necessary then i don't think it's good or, or the only thing that god you can, do can do anything is, randomly well he he can do it randomly perhaps so then not everything but, that he does is necessary right yep well i would say that it it is hard for me to square the idea that god is good or god is necessarily good because if you're necessarily good then you can't choose anything but good Therefore, yeah, it's not I'm really good. what you're saying. Um, I think that in, if God could have done otherwise, it's going to have to be in the indeterministic sense, meaning that yeah. um, God just sort of randomly does A. Had he done not A, that would have been just as morally permissible 
but there would have been no explanation yeah. for why he would have done otherwise, which means that yeah. if you're correct, which I think you are, um, that either if all of, if God is actually doing the moral obligation, he necessarily does it. So all of God's actions are necessarily determined. So you have modal collapse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or um, that God's actions are just purely random. There's no really good explanation for why he does one or the other, right? One of the, yeah. so that's to say it could never be an explanation that, oh, well, oh, this, the reason why God did this rather than this other thing is that it was good. Well, then it just closes off that poss- the, uh, the possibility to do otherwise. And so you yeah. get necessitarianism. Is that kind of the and, idea? Yeah, and maybe under the scheme, the only way that God can do good is by, by enabling the possibility of good through giving human beings the opportunity to do good. And by doing so, God also necessarily creates evil. Oh, no, 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 necessarily not creates evil. Necessarily enables the possibility of evil to exist. Because following the line of mm-hmm. argument we said before, in order to do the good, you also have the possibility to do evil. Without the possibility to do evil, there's no chance to do good. And what perhaps we yeah, really in charge with, yeah, we were scared squaring uh, just then or discussing is, uh, how how does this link with uh, a solution to the problem of evil? Yeah, so I think that if I were a theist, I would say something like, well, okay, fine, Mister Agnostic, the possibility evil is always there, but couldn't God actualize a world where, um, you know, the good is always done despite the possibility of evil? So then there's like two problems of evil here, I think. Um, well, other than I'm not talking about the logical evidential distinction, but I'm talking about there's the problem of the possibility of evil. Right. And then there's a the problem of, um, OK, well, the actual evil. Right. That that if God couldn't have God actualized a world in which everyone does the good despite the possibility of evil. And then there's a question about why would God allow for the possibility of evil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, something like that. I guess what, what I would say is it's God wouldn't be able to actualize a world where, oh, there, there might be a, there might conceivably be the case that there is a world wherein all the actualization of the opportunity for good or evil comes out as good. However, what God can do, the action that God can do is to provide the possibility and to let it play out. Because if he, if what he actualizes is really just a world where every, every action is done is good when provided with the opportunity, then that thing won't be good anymore following the, the line of reasoning we did before. Oh, I'm, this, if, I'm, I'm, I'm losing you here, so you're going to have to explain okay. that one more time. Yeah. So perhaps the response would be that what God can do is to, God cannot actualize a world wherein everyone provided with the possibility of doing good or evil does the good every single time. Yeah, because, I, don't, I, don't know why, I don't know why that's true, but if you want to continue, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, because if he actualizes that world, then it would the the actions that everyone does won't be good. In that there won't be any freedom for them to choose good. So what I would perhaps say is God can God has the ability to provide the possibility for everything 
for all the choices that we do for us to choose for us to actualize all the possibilities given us as good however god does not have the ability to make it so in the current world perhaps i could can i bust yeah. in here for a you second your... I, I, the question here is to really say well what do we mean when we're saying that god is actualizing a world because there's a few different ways that people could could kind of picture that there's the idea let's that make, let's, make it easy. let's make it easy making true we can just say making true mm -hmm. right because I think, actualizing... that that, mm -hmm. I think that that view perhaps of making it true may make it very difficult for us to sustain the idea that people are actually free. Perhaps this is what Warren's saying, and, I'm, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, Warren, but, but perhaps there's this idea that just assume the entire history of a certain possible world is written out in a book, and that might be the easiest way to understand it and actualizing it, just to pick that book out of the, an infinite library and say, well, that's the world, and in that book, everyone freely chooses to do good. Perhaps what Warren is trying to say is that that world is no longer free, and in some sense, by choosing it, by actualizing it, there is some sense of just full necessity in that world instead of any actual possibility in the world, but rather yeah, that's the only Warren on because I don't see that entailment, mm -hmm. right? So let's, let's just look. If we think about the, are, are y'all familiar with the Molinism? Are you familiar mm -hmm. yeah. with Molinism? So Warren. I'm not very familiar. I think Josh is. <laughs> okay. Well, Molinism is something like God knows all creaturely counterfactuals about um, uh, creaturely. I guess uh, counterfactuals about creaturely freedom, what you would do and these various circumstances. And so um, that knowledge, the idea is that there's then there's a further step in Molinism that God, God, God sort of actualizes on the basis of this kind of knowledge. So there's some people that think that God has that kind of knowledge, but doesn't actualize the world based on that knowledge. Um, but um, I, okay, so let's just start with this claim then. So suppose um, God knows that you will do X uh, given these sort of set of circumstances, right? And he actualizes it. He, he makes it such that those circumstances come to fruition, gives you that essence that you are, that personhood that you are, and then you do it. Um, the idea is that what it means to actualize that, that is to ground some kind of counterfactual where had, um, had God not existed, for instance, or had he not in, uh, no intentionality, then this would have not happened, right? So I think that that's kind of very loosely what I mean, what I think I would mean by uh, actualize, right? I don't think that establishes, um, if we're saying that that's how we cash out actualization, that implies that God is deterministically um, enter, uh, entering in that scenario and causing you on it, um, to do something. So I guess if we liken this to an example where there's this uh, random event, and God I, could God actualize a random event? I think He can, right? The idea is that if we um, give us some kind of coin flipper generator that somehow indeterministically produced events, right? God could actualize a world in which that generator exists and produced uh, random outcomes in terms of coin flipping. Um, seems like that's coherent, but if He actualizes that world, that doesn't imply the fact that there's the that the coin flipping or the outcome isn't indeterministic. So I think that that's how Molinists look at it, that God can kind of see the random outcome and then actualize the circumstances to where you have that outcome, but is not deterministically there to decide the outcome to, or explain the outcome itself. I think that's how yeah, they I, look at it. I guess the the where the the, the the step that I can't really connect is 
where you go from a God can actualize a random outcome, which I completely agree. And I think it's by actualizing a certain random outcome that God enables the good. But what, what I would, uh, the step that I can't follow is how can, how does God uh, actualize a random outcome, but also know the, the result of that outcome? Okay, so this is like a this is the grounding objection to Molinism. I don't know if you're familiar, but the idea is that suppose a God knows about some future event and that a particular and there's a particular random outcome in that future event. Given that the out outcome by definition has no explanation, what could serve as a justification for um, in knowing that the outcome? Given that there's no explanation, typically when we're justified in um, knowing something concrete or a concrete event our justifications usually involve some kind of causal uh, story with respect to the outcome, right? So how do I know the sun will rise tomorrow is given certain knowing certain laws of physics or, um, or whatever, right? Um, it, at least that's, that might be a poor example, but the point is that a lot of our justifications have built in the explanation for the thing, the event that we know about. So if the, an indeterministic outcome has no explanation, what could serve as justification? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, and even oh, yeah. I would say that if God can know the outcome of this indeterminate event, then why would he call this event indeterminate <laughs> if, if God can know the outcome? Well, I, but you see, knowing something has no implications on causing something, right? I can know that the sun will rise tomorrow, but my knowledge has no causal, has nothing to yeah. do with the, with the causal relations that go on such that the sun uh, rises in the east, Right. So uh, just the fact that God knows a future outcome, I think, has no bearing on. Because you can imagine, let's say, yeah. imagine, work with me, mm -hmm. a God that's not that's uh, causally inert, mm -hmm. but just knows things, right? So you can go okay. to him asking questions, but he can't do anything. Yeah. Think of like of an oracle that's just completely impotent, right? Exactly. Um, so, but they can still know things, but they're not yeah. causing anything. So, uh, the, yeah, I, I, the, one, one way that yeah. people might think that God knows things is taking certain theories of time. So like a B theory of time, right? Where yeah. the events event in fact exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so God could just kind of look into the event and see, and there's no like mm -hmm. causal relation or causal explanation in him seeing it mm -hmm. in terms of the indeterminacy. Okay. What were you going to say? Sorry. Yeah. I think what I would, I wouldn't disagree with this idea, I guess where, where my confusion was is that I don't think God can pick out of, after knowing all the outcomes, can pick out of all the worlds to actualize one where all the outcome is good. It's that God has to first actualize it before God can. Uh, God has to actualize the world before God can know the outcomes. Because without yeah, you're actualizing saying that the world, yeah. The theory of time is not going to work if there's nothing yeah. actualized. The idea is that if you're depending on a theory of time for God's knowledge, there's already actualization, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, if if the idea is that before the act of creation, there's a deliberative process um, where nothing's actualized. So how would God know? Yeah. So let's I think we have to be a little kind of picky here as philosophers. Right. We're going to have to really think about if there's a logical contradiction, because I might be let's say the theist says, I don't know. I don't know how he knows, but he knows. Is that logically incoherent? And if it is, there's got to be a contradiction in in there somewhere but i'm not it's not obvious there's no prima facie contradiction right um the grounding objection opposed against molinism is that certain 
propositions that are true only made true given some kind of ontological existence. So the fact that, let's say, we are having a conversation is made true given that we exist and having a conversation, right? So that's kind of grounds the truth value there. And so some people say, well, there's no such, there's what's the grounding for these uh, counterfactuals? There's nothing that in existence to ground the counterfactual. So Molinist, you have a problem. So that's usually how the argument goes. Um, what the, the Molinist typically responds with is that, hey, you don't need ontological grounding for true propositions given um, like propositions like uh, Harry Potter does not exist, right? What's the ontological grounding that makes that true? Harry Potter, nothing exists, right? In terms of the Harry Potter world. So, but nonetheless, the proposition is true. So the proposition that I decided to do A over B in these sort of circumstances, and that's sort of indeterministic, we're taking like a libertarian free will there. Um, well, uh, there's no ontological grounding given that's some kind of counterfactual, but it doesn't need an ontological grounding. Um, doesn't seem like, it seems like the, the Molinist has, can just say, doesn't need it. Right. So what, right. That, that proposition is just true. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so is that, I don't know. I, I it's going to be hard to see the contradiction for me at least, yeah. um, in defense of Molinist. I, I don't know. What do you, do you see a contradiction? I, I don't think so. I think it would, there, there will be a contradiction if you assume a, a theory of time. And then uh, from that, explain something. But if you're just saying God somehow knows, I don't, I don't really think you have any contradiction. But the question would be then, why, why are you proposing this theory? And then it seems like you're, you're, you're working towards a conclusion you want to have, and then sort of finding, uh, giving an explanation that has no logical contradiction. You think it's but too you're saying yeah, it's too ad hoc. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, what. The what is the Molinist trying to do here in the first place? They're trying to reconcile sovereignty and free will. That's what they're trying to do. So they're it's actually they're starting from a uh, they're when you're trying to make some kind of system coherent, ad hocness doesn't matter. So here's what the theist yeah. typically does: they look in the Bible, they see humans uh, do. Th uh, there's some kind of sense of control that humans have, where humans have a sense of responsibility, free will. Ah, but it also has talks about God's sovereignty. So how do we reconcile these two things? Sorry if you can hear the clock. I'm, I'm at my parents' place for Christmas. But the, the idea is that um, what all they have to do is show a coherent picture, right? It, it doesn't have, they're not worried about ad hocness because they're going to root their justifications for believing the biblical text in terms of something else, right? They're saying, they're, they, they look at the alternative. The alternative is open theism. Well, uh, you know, you don't, a lot of Christians don't want to be open theists. Calvinism is another alternative, right? That where God can know uh, the count these 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 uh, creaturely counterfactuals, given that He determines them, right? There's causal correlations that He can depend on to know to have justifications for that. But then, you know, a lot of think a lot of people think that that just makes the problem of evil that much worse. Um, but so so here, those are your those are your two options. Then you have Arminianism, and I don't know. Too much about Arminianism, but the the ideas uh, that Ar uh, Armenia, Arminianism and Molinism have a lot in common. I think the main difference is that um, a lot. I, I I I'm a little unprepared to give the exact difference, but if you a lot of Arminians don't know about Molinism, and if they knew about Molinism, they would just be like, "Oh, I'm very sympathetic." So really, there's not the alternatives seem kind of horrible, other than Arminianism. Arminianism, and so they're just going to go for Molinism. That's sort of like a, a we're eliminating the worst possibilities. We're mm -hmm. taking a theory that best makes sense of the biblical data. Well, I'm no theist though, but I am an atheist, but I think that's how I would um, mm -hmm. see it. I wouldn't see it in terms of 
ad hocness being a problem because they're just trying to make their biblical account coherent. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I, I'm wondering what Josh thinks of, of this kind of procedure. Do you think it's justified or because you're you're the Christian here? <laughs> well, I think that I think that when we're discussing God's foreknowledge, perhaps in some degree you could say that I'm a bit of a heretic when it comes to Christian doctrines, but I would perhaps oh, say that there is, yeah, but there, exactly, but there isn't. I don't think personally, and there, that, that there is a significant con contradiction between the idea of God foreknowing the future and that there's free will in some sense that I don't think Molinism is necessarily, is, is actually needed for perhaps for some uh, view of uh, humans having free will and God knowing the future. Because I think that even if you know all counterfactuals, it doesn't necessarily mean that you actually know which one is actualized unless you actualize it yourself. Though, of course, in the situation with God, God creates, so theoretically creates the world, so he actualizes it, so we technically would know. But but perhaps, perhaps the reason, one of the ways you can go around with it is that God creates a world. I'm not exactly sure how close, I don't think this is necessarily open theism, but but rather that God creates the world and and in that creation of the world is is way more hands-off than what you would see in Molinism. So Molinism is more about counterfactuals and the actualization of certain counterfactuals, perhaps. But but perhaps it's even more hands-off in, in the sense that he creates the world, but not not so much as it's deistic, but rather just he creates the world, intervenes when necessary, but allows other people to act in other ways. Because I think it's not it doesn't at least it doesn't appear contradictory for someone to to create a world and and then not interfere while simultaneously knowing what will happen in the world and what how the god knows exactly what will happen in that certain future is is perhaps could be quite close to a molinistic interpretation but but you could imagine a god creating a world without actualizing any counterfactuals in it so it's kind of perhaps what we we're discussing just now but without an individual actualization of each individual event, but rather just a creation perhaps a deistic creation but with more interaction instead of a, a fully christian interpretation i'm not sure that fully makes sense like feel free to tell me to clarify anything <laughs> i think our lad is perhaps frozen a bit is that just me or okay yes <laughs> not fret <laughs> What do you think, Warren? You do you have any calling for clarification? I think I might I might have to go and eat dinner. My oh. my my Wi-Fi got crapped on, but it looks like you have to go eat dinner or something, Warren, right? Yeah, I yeah. think Josh, Josh can talk with you. It, it was it was a great it was a great conversation. Yes, uh, we, we probably will be on some other time. See, Warren. Okay, he just disappeared. Do you want me to clarify anything? Wait, which which when did you start clapping out? I I didn't see when you. So you were talking about. Sovereignty, God's uh, freedom and creatural freedom, and you were trying to harmonize them in some kind of way. And you talked about God intervening when necessary. That's the last thing I remember. Mm -hmm. So, I, perhaps to summarize what I've said, or at least the thoughts, and you could elaborate, you asked me to elaborate wherever, is, is just kind of the idea that you could imagine it God, like the deistic interpretation, God just creates the world and leaves it, perhaps. That, just, just to summarize that very quickly. And, and you have that kind of idea. But then you could also think of a world where God creates the world and leaves it, but knows everything which happens in that world in the future. And then you have a third world where God creates the world and knows everything that happens in the future, but can interact on it in certain degrees in the sense that he can perhaps appear in the world like, um, like, 
like the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the world. Then you have those three situations, one where God just creates the world and leaves it. God creates the world and knows everything in that world in the future. And then God knows everything in the future and interacts with the world, at least in certain degrees, to some degree, by miracles or whatever you want to call it. And, and I don't see any contradiction, perhaps, in any of the three worlds. And perhaps it is the third world that we're closest to. And instead of actually interacting or creating the world such that every single counterfactual or every single situation in the world is attuned to do good, he just creates the world and lets people to live in it in the in the sense of the deistic sense. Is, the, is that clear or no? Well, I it seems like I'm trying to understand what you're trying to harmonize, right? Um, it seems like, um, are you trying to harmonize uh god sovereignty and creaturely freedom like what is it what is the what are the theories are supposed to what what is it a theory supposed to be here is it between those two things in the parent tension perhaps it's the idea that i don't see a full i don't see a bigger problem as a molinist between god's foreknowledge and um perhaps uh, human free creaturely freedom so in some sense, I don't think the Molinist problem actually exists to a significant degree. Sorry, so when you say Molinist problem, you're you're saying that you're saying that Molinism, Molinism is a problem or trying to solve a problem that's well, really trying not to there. solve the problem. Yeah. That's not really you don't think the problem is there kind of to begin with? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Because I think it, okay. well, I mean because mm-hmm. I think it's possible to I'm not sure whether it came from a conversation with you, and I'm not sure whether it's fully Molinist view, because I have to admit I'm not I guess you're really focused too much on Are you compatibilist or incompatibilist about free will? I think you can know what happens in the future while still having free will. For example, right, but are you are you a compatibilist or not about free will? Do you know what I mean? Saying, by, so, do you think determinism can be true while free will can be true, or do you think they're mutually logically uh, mutually uh, logically exclusive to one another? I would say they're. You can't be determined and free at the same time. So I'll say okay, so that, that's called incompatibilism. So mm-hmm. you're sympathetic to libertarian free will. Is that kind of what you're? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now there now there's a question, right? Okay. So if indeterminism or libertarian free will is something like um, when you choose to act, you're the origin, you're the originator of your action. Okay. There's no prior set of antecedent conditions that determine one outcome rather than another okay then there's going to be a tension a prima facie tension right given that there is some kind of counterfactual if god didn't exist we would we couldn't make choices right Mm -hmm. so that is what the molinist is trying to to reconcile is that our actions are indeterministic there's no prior antecedent conditions that um, explain one outcome over another but nonetheless there is this kind of counterfactual where if God, without God's intentionality, right, we couldn't make choices. So it seems like in some sense, there's an explanation with, re- with respect to our choices. And that's what the Molinist is trying to solve, I think. That's how I see it, at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it appears to me that if you take away, let's just take away God's kind of foreknowledge or the existence of God in general, even though it's not complete, we don't, don't act in a de- in a determinate way, it does seem that when we are making free choices, we still have reasons for our choices. For example, mm-hmm. uh, when I'm eating breakfast, I eat breakfast because I'm hungry. There's kind of that, there's still some sense of understanding and explanation in the universe, apart mm-hmm. from the existence of God above, perhaps. 
seems like you're giving a reason for compatibilism now. Or so, so but would, mm -hmm. you're saying that what do you? So where are you going with that? Perhaps it's the idea that we aren't determined. I will, I will deny determinism. Perhaps the idea that we are indeed determined to do what. Yeah. Okay. So, on your view, if you choose to eat cereal rather than pancakes, what is there any explanation for why you do one rather than the other? I'll say there are explanations, but I wouldn't say the explanations determine exactly why I'm going to choose. For example, you could very much have the same reason to say I like I normally like cereal, but for the sake of choosing to eat like pancakes the same day, I'll choose pancakes instead. Okay, so I see. And, and perhaps see. that itself could be a reason, but like, I wouldn't say you're determined in perhaps a physical determinist sense. Okay, so I think you're using explanation to mean something slightly different than what I mean. I take explanations um, to be entailing. So if the idea is that it grounds some kind of counterfactual at the very least where like, if I tripped because of a rock, if the rock explains why I tripped, it sort of entails it in the sense that there's going to be some counterfactual where had the rock not been there when I'm tripped, right? That's that's kind of what explains the difference in outcomes between a world where I tripped and a world I didn't trip. And so the idea, though, for at least certain types of accounts of free will in the libertarian camp is that when you choose to do one action A over B, right? If there's some entailing explanation that's going to, on their view, it's it 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 uh, jeopardizes the possibility of doing otherwise, and they don't want that, right? At least some libertarians don't want that. Mm -hmm. um, so, but nonetheless, you're saying though, there's a looser form of explanation that we can invoke, right? Where it's not entailing, right? But if it's not entailing, you're kind of leaving room. Well, first of all, you're not going to be able to ground a counterfactual. So it's not going to. So let's say, why is it that I ate fruity pebbles rather than dirt? Right. And you might say, well, the biggest reason is that dirt tastes bad. Well, if it's if you're saying that it's not an entailing explanation, then I don't think there would be some counterfactual. Well, had Fruit Loops tasted like dirt. Um, then I would have not eaten that either. Or if dirt had the same nutritional value or taste as Fruit Loops, then I would have eaten that. Um, something like that. That's a pretty poor example, but uh, my part. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Th there is talk about non-entailing explanations, but I think that the idea of a non-entailing explanation is that it's going to involve randomness or indeterminacy at the, mm -hmm. in the end of it. So I think that, the tension for the libertarian is that you're trying to escape indeterminism because you don't want randomness. So you invoke non-entailing explanations, but non-entailing explanations are partial explanations. That's to say the other partially unexplained part is just going to leave room for indeterminacy. So you're back to the same problem. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we could Whereas build if you have entailing explanations, you're talking about determination. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we could build up from what is, what can be determined and what cannot be determined. Because I think if we, if we look at the world, certain things are indeed determined, perhaps the laws of nature, of course, quantum mechanics seems to perhaps might have some questions there, but I think just as the simple, simplest kind of understanding is that there is some sense of counterfactuals in the first example that you gave about the rock. Like if you trip on a rock, you're, you're scientifically determined to fall down. And that's perhaps a bit of a different mm -hmm. discussion from free will. So we, we could perhaps build a counterfactual on that base level. Perhaps moving beyond that, it's like the, the question, well, 
well, is our is our choice to eat um, a banana for breakfast the same sense of determination as the as a physical one? It doesn't seem intuitive to me that it is exactly the same sense that the explanation that I'm eating a banana for breakfast because it's good for my body or good for my health is as perhaps entailing as the idea that I am that I I in some sense. Mm-hmm got my head hit by a rock and now i'm dead or something like that yeah there's uh this is this is interesting i think i partially agree with you um here's the th- the thing I, I i'm not so convinced that the o- only sorts of entailing explanations are sorts of explanations that are understood in terms of laws or theories of nature uh, so um i do agree though that um if we are determined which i do believe we are um that that sort of the sort of so let's just clarify all i take if i if something's determined i just take something to have that phenomenon to have an explanation the sort of explanation where grounds are counterfactual so we're really talking about causation right um there are, are non-causal explanations like in logic and mathematics and even ethics right but um we're not talking about those but the idea here is that if i'm determined to make a choice rather than a different one. I think that that determination is the, the, the way that we give that kind of account is going to be very different than the way that we give a, 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 a an account of what's happening with motion and physics. Right. And I think it's pretty complicated, but um, very simply it's something like this, that if I decided to be polite to you rather than be rude to you. Right. And someone asked why, what's the explanation for that? I'm right? I give a reason, okay? And that reason bears a certain weight such that it, it carries a sort of weight where it out, outweighs the other reason to be rude to you, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's the end. For me, I think on with intentional explanations, that's where it ends. No further explanation needed, right? Now, you could then push, you know, why is it that there's that particular weight? And then you could cite other things. But the idea is that the weight of that reason is going to be, um, number one, entailing, Okay, and number two, not further reducible. Okay, uh, your re—I don't think reasons are reducible to like descriptive things like atoms and electrons, right? So, whereas the rock in my example, right, that explains why I didn't tr- why why I did trip, right? You can reduce the rock in terms of a frame a naturalistic framework of causal uh, causal necessity and laws and scientific theory, right? And uh, in fact, you could even eliminate the rock for some other type of more fundamental phenomena, like the atoms of the you know uh, surround the rock and whatever, right? And you can quantify you know these things in a in, in a fully naturalistic framework. I don't think you can do that with reasons, right? So there's going to be a, a very different notion of the idea is that I think that reasons are irreducible, natural phenomena is reducible. And not only reducible, but understood in terms of a framework of theories and laws. So when I say that, oh, I had this reason to not, to be polite to you rather than be rude to you, that's the end, right? But when I say that the rock tripped me, I could actually further describe the rock in terms of reducible phenomena like atoms, quarks, and laws of motion and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the main difference for me, at least in my in my opinion, between the determinism and the the sort of type of explanation that occurs between um, choices and actions and free will than what's going on in the scientific world and the natural world. Right? Mm-hmm. 
So it seems that we both agree at least on one side of the deterministic um, spectrum mm -hmm. about the, the physical sense, perhaps, if, or at least we have some agreement on, on that sense. So it's really about yeah. moving towards the other spectrum. And, and perhaps what we are just, maybe the disagreement may be a bit more superficial in the sense that it might just be our definition of what it means to be free. That perhaps could also be another reason for why there is a, another disagreement on the other side. But perhaps moving a bit forward, where else would you say that do you think reducibility is purely that which is reducibility the only reason which separates between why reasons are perhaps more on this side than or at least separated from kind of purely I tripped over a rock? Is reducibility the main kind of symmetry breaker between the two situations? I think it's related to something else. I think it has to do with the normativity of reasons. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term normativity, but really. the idea is that if I have a reason to do something, I should do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, at least uh, it, you might believe in external internal reasons, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that um, with respect to our actions, there are certain imperatives that we might have that motivate our actions. Whereas the rock and its behavior, right, with, with, with whatever physical structure, anatomical structure of your body, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not doing what it should be doing. It's not doing the right or wrong thing, right? It just does according to some kind of naturalistic framework of that world, right? There's no normativity in that system. So I think that that plays into the redu uh, the redu irreducibility of, of reasons is because that, there, that normativity can't be reduced to um, descriptive things, right? So the idea is that rocks are descriptive things. They're naturalistic things, and they can be understood in, further, in terms of more fundamental naturalistic things so you're taking a descriptive higher level phenomena or, and you're understanding in terms of more underlying, like this underlying phenomena, but with normativity, you can't do that given Hume's considerations of the ought distinction, right? You're taking an ought, right? You can't break it down any further than to like the, to these descriptive components, like atoms and electrons and descriptive states of affairs, like uh, theories and stuff like that, because normative states are irreducible given that they can't be identified. There's like a really good separation according to Hume and others uh, between is and ought, right? So if I should, if I have a reason to do what I did, that means I, let's say most reason to do what I did, okay? Mm -hmm. um, then I should have done that, all things considered, right? And if I should have done that, I can't break that down, that should uh, and to break that down into descriptive stuff like atoms, Right then, you're mm -hmm. going to be breaching that is odd gap if you do right. So I think that this kind of reducibility, laws, um, normativity is all intertwined in terms of freedom and the the difference in the types of causation that occurs when we make choices and the side of kind of causation that happens when there's a rock slide. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps one of the most I, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say I agree with this objection, but perhaps someone could say something along the lines that science has, in some sense, explained why we feel or think a certain way. And, and perhaps yeah. this goes down to the mind-body problem in some degree and say, well, what if science does indeed explain everything you're thinking? Then would that change perhaps your view about human, or at least your well, view about the determinacy of um, reason? Yeah, I really think they're good a priori arguments for why that can't be true. Um, mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if you take, I mean, there are a lot of routes, but um, yeah, I am a dualist. I'm a mind-body dualist, right? Mm -hmm. And for because I think that at least partially now you talked about feelings or um, in philosophy land, we call them qualitative states or qualia. Mm -hmm. 
Those are going to be weird. Um, I don't really have a good account of those. Um, I suspect that they're not uh, reducible, um, but they're not. Re if they're not reducible, they're not. They're irreducible for different reasons that I just cited. But when we're talking about intentionality, we're talking about beliefs and desires. Those are not feelings, right? Um, mm -hmm. Those are not qualia. Um, and I think that these sorts of beliefs and desires are what constitutes internal reasons. So if I believe that it's raining outside, I'm committed to that truth and I shouldn't believe the opposite. So I think beliefs are normative. Same with desires, right? If I desire to eat breakfast in the morning at 8 a.m., then I have a reason to do it. And if I have a reason to do it, I should eat breakfast in the morning, giving that desire all, all things being equal. Um, so yeah, then if, but the, what science studies is descriptive stuff. Science doesn't tell mm -hmm. you uh, the laws of what should happen or what shouldn't happen or tell you what what's right or wrong. And I think that this notion of rightness and wrongness and good and bad are just so heavily intertwined with our intentionality or the, the agential nature of ourselves, right? The, the fact that we're beings that act on the basis of reasons and imperatives, right? That, I don't think that can fit in a, in a naturalistic framework, get, given that naturalistic frameworks are purely descriptive. And what naturalistic frameworks are, the sorts of things that are studyable by the sciences. Anything outside of that is not studyable by the sciences. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, and and perhaps one of the, I think we might actually be very similar on what we view as these reasons. Though, of course, there's always the situations where people seem to act completely out of out of reasons, and you could say those people are incorrect. But there seems to be a certain sense of people who just rebel against common reason. For example, you could ask someone. Why exactly are they doing something a certain way? You could push them all to the bottom of, well, for example, I was talking to some people about like why they're underage people going drinking and doing drugs. I'm like, why are you doing that? Like originally they say, well, I'm doing it for fun. I'm like, do you not see what the health problems are? And then they agree with me. They say all the reasonable things about the problems of doing drugs when you're underage. And I mean, even if you're overage, like don't do drugs. Like that's probably not the best for you. But mm -hmm. like, but like they could see all the reasons in front of them that they shouldn't be doing what they should they are doing, but they continue to do it. So it seems that there is this perhaps a gap between someone's reasons and their choices or their actions. Yes, yeah, so there's a big debate about this in philosophy. Um, there's a paper that you should probably read if you're interested in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Paper is called Internal and External Reasons by Bernard Williams. Very short paper, very very worth reading if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Um, but the idea is that. Um, what I'm describing an intentionality is something what we call internal reasons, right? So mm -hmm. what you're describing, right, in terms of someone acting incorrectly, given something, you're kind of outsourcing the reason outside, uh, in terms of some kind of objective imperative. And that's what we mm -hmm. might call an external reason. So Kant um, had this distinction, right? He thought that, yeah, we act on the basis of reasons and there are internal reasons, but then there's this thing called pure reason, right, which is external to an agent, nonetheless, the agent is sensitive to. Um, and so, uh, there, yeah, there's a lot of debate about what, like, do you know Derek Parfit? Uh, no. Is that bundle One theory? Of the no, that's, that, that's, that he, he's, he's an, you know, bundle theory is, um, I think predates Parfit. Okay. And Parfit mostly worked on, um, you're talking about like bundles of, you're talking about ontology, like bundles of properties as opposed to like substance theory and stuff like that. Is that kind of what you're talking about, bundle theory? I think it was, I can't even remember what it was anymore, honestly. it's Yeah, because I, I I'm a bundle of, theorist yeah. about, mm -hmm. pro, about objects, right? So I think all mm -hmm. objects are bundles of properties, whereas someone like that, that subscribes to substance theory is that there's something grounding the properties to make the object mm -hmm. and kind of yeah. explain this existence through time, con, you know, the continuity of time. But um, mm -hmm. anyways, going back 
Parfit, he died like in 2017. Uh, one of the most famous moral philosophers of the mm-hmm. late 20th century, early 21st century. Um, he uh, he invoked external reasons very famously. Mm-hmm. Um, he thought that reason could be understood in kind of this external sense and that reasons weren't merely internal. Whereas Bernard Williams uh, is uh, more of an internalist about reasons. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, like I, I'm, I'm more of an internalist and I have my accounts in terms of how people evaluate their mistakes and stuff like that. I think you can do that purely in terms of internal reasons, but a lot of people agree with you that we, there's like this external sense of reason that you can evaluate whether some action is incorrect or correct, despite mm-hmm. their internal reasons. Yeah. Perhaps I have to end the thing here because I have to head off to dinner in like three minutes. I'm really sorry for having to cut off this discussion really promptly, but uh, yeah, I, I do have dinner in like three We spoke minutes. for a while, so. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad yeah. to have you on. I mean, if you happen to uh, see me and more live streaming, then just, uh, just, just let I'll us knock know on in the, the chat. Yeah, knock on the yeah. door and knock and it will be opened unto you, I suppose. But <laughs> I hope I hope you have a great day, man. Uh, Merry you Christmas too. and, and have, Merry have Christmas a new year in touch. Yeah. See ya. Stay safe. Bye. Yeah.